Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 15th of February. Then, a former colleague of mine and no stranger to television screens around South Africa and the world, in fact, Jane Dutton, she chats to Arnu von Halden, the head of Shift at Standard Bank, as part of her new show, Money 101 with Jane Dutton. Then, you'll hear my voice as I speak to two very clever individuals, advocate Erin Richards and Bain whistleblower Athel Williams. Did the global legal heavyweight Baker McKenzie justifiably shield its clients from scrutiny or criminal prosecution by invoking legal privilege? Now, the client, of course, there that we're speaking about is Bain and Co. That was deeply implicated in state capture at the South African Revenue Service by both the Nugent Commission and the State Capture Inquiry. It's over to my colleague Nadia Swart now for your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. In today's headlines, the city of Chwane on Tuesday cut the power supply to the South African Revenue Service, the South African Police Service headquarters and the Gautrain station in Hatfield. The city said Gautrain owed 10 million rand and had last paid its account in 2020. The city also said that Mendo Properties, which is the landlord at the SAPS headquarters, owed 5.1 million rand. It was, however, still unclear how much SARS owed the city. SARS is the tenant we are owed by the landlord, the city clarified. The MMC for Finance, Peter Sutton, said that in the last month, 420 disconnections of businesses had taken place. Opposition parties grilled President Saul Ramaphosa in the post-SONA debate this week. The Democratic Alliance proposed a no-confidence vote against the president and his entire cabinet. The DA slammed Ramaphosa for failing to hold his executive accountable for rampant corruption and widespread economic decline. The EFF, meanwhile, said that the president's reliance on the private sector and extra-governmental organizations to do things was already a vote of no confidence in the ministers and deputies he appointed. Several other smaller parties also indicated support for such a motion. Former Health Minister Zweli Mkhize has reportedly been implicated in more corrupt activities. Nkize has been linked to alleged corruption involving the Public Investment Corp and the Unemployment Insurance Fund. It is alleged that when Nkize served as ANC Treasurer General, he scored kickbacks of 6 million rand from an advisory firm handling a 1.4 billion rand contract with the PIC. Nkize resigned last year after being linked to the 150 million rand Digital Vibes Communications Tender, a communications contract with the Department of Health awarded to his close associates. The scandal also led to the suspension of several senior managers in the health department. And now it's over to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSEL share index was flat at 75,900. In the price action, banks all well in the green, led by Nedbank after superb earnings guidance. More on that in a bit. On the downside, yesterday's winners, the miners, all down today on lower commodity prices. And the JLT crypto basket is up a whopping 8% on the day. 
And the currency action, the rand is slightly stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 17 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 54 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 21 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,847 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back 29,500 rand. Brent crude is trading at $94.10 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin is around the 670,000 rand level. In the financial news, Nedbank, South Africa's fourth largest bank by assets, expects its headline earnings per share for the year ending to 2021 to rise by between 110 and 120% in what it described as a stronger than expected performance. Headline earnings per share, a widely used measure of profit in South Africa, stripping out impairments in one-off items, will increase by more than 100% to around 24 rand, which is the midpoint of the guidance issued by the lender for the year to 31 December. Nedbank said the doubling of its profits was due to a stronger-than-expected performance in the last few months of 2021 as operating conditions for the bank and its clients continued to improve. Banks in 2020 gave customers payment holidays to help them cope with lower income during the pandemic and hard lockdown. In 2021, many clients were able to start repaying loans and reduce debt. The banks made large provisions for these loans, owing to the uncertainty that the pandemic brought, but a faster-than-expected return to normalization has seen these provisions reverse into profit, a tailwind for earnings. Hello, I'm Jane Dutton, and a very warm welcome to Money 101 with Jane Dutton. We're going to be talking about all things money, and I'm sure we could all do with a little help in some areas, from death duties to cryptocurrency and buying property on the metaverse. So we're going to be speaking to experts who deal in financial matters every day and put your questions to them. Today, we're going to be talking about offshore investments and Nicholas from Cape Town has got in touch and he's got a few questions. So let's talk to him. Nicholas from Cape Town, thanks for getting in touch with us. You have a few questions when it comes to offshore investments. What are they? Yes, thanks, Jane. My wife and I are looking for somewhere to park a relatively modest lump sum, which she has withdrawn from her retirement savings. It's a typical kind of rainy day fund uh, that might be required in a couple of weeks or a couple of months for school tours. Uh, My granddaughter's been selected for the tag box. We're going to Ireland in August, and that's largely self-funded. So that sort of thing. Um, But we wanted better performance than you can get from like a fixed deposit or a seven-day account. So when I noticed the Alec Cogg's um, reference to the Shift app, it caught my eye, and I wondered whether that might not be appropriate, you know, a way to get performance plus flexibility. But I'm really in the dark about some of the fees and and how easy it is to move money in and out of it. And how to diversify in that area. Yeah, absolutely. I think in in today's economy and with things being so unpredictable in a lot of ways, I prefer to reduce our exposure to single currency risk, I suppose you could say, to the RAND, and definitely would look to try and tap into growth of some of the, probably the sort of high tech or big tech companies um, that that would maybe give us a little bit more stability and performance. Okay, thank you for that. I'll put that to the guest and uh, hope we answer your questions in a way that's going to help you have a much more easy trip abroad. Thanks, Nicholas. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Anna van Helden from Standard Bank has been listening in on that interview. And firstly, thank you very much for coming in. What should Nicholas do when it comes to investing offshore? What's the easiest way of going about his research? Well, you know, it really depends on what Nicholas wants to achieve in the long term, in the 
the short term and the medium term. So certainly living in South Africa, you know, we've become quite used to a currency that ultimately is is devaluating against currencies like the dollar, the euro, and the pound. And so when one looks at one's asset portfolio or investment portfolio, one really needs to consider this. And moving and investing funds into a currency like dollars or euros or pounds should be a fundamental part of anyone's uh, investment strategy. But there's certain things that one needs to consider. Foreign exchange rates, is the rate Mm. good at the time or bad at the time? And that's obviously a relative question. And very quickly, do you have to absorb that loss into your portfolio? So so that is something that you obviously will have to counter at a later stage. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, if if you're going to retire and you're thinking of investing, you know, a million rand today, what will that million rand be worth in dollar terms uh, in in five years from now, in 10 years from now? And so having that exposure to foreign currencies is is critical uh, if you're going to maintain wealth and maintain the investment value from a global perspective, not just from a South African perspective. And is that on the assumption that the rand is not likely to get better anytime soon? Is that a fair assumption? Well, you know, like I've mentioned before, uh, I'm not a financial advisor, but certainly if you look historically, uh, you know, the RAND is going in one direction. It may improve and it can always improve, but the likelihood of it continuing to weaken in the foreseeable future is very strong. Right. So somebody wrote to me a little earlier today and they were wondering, when you invest offshore, should you invest in RANDs or dollars? So I'm assuming that means when you start off your investment, do you convert or not? My view is that if you can convert, um, if you're able to actually take the funds and convert the funds into a fiat currency like you know, dollars, euros or pounds, uh, and then invest offshore, uh, I believe that that's a good strategy. Obviously, there are limitations from a reserve bank perspective. So you can only take 1 million rand out unless you apply for the additional investment allowance of up to 10 million rand. But if you're working within that barrier of 1 million only, my view would be take that out and invest that offshore. The advantage with that is that you don't necessarily have to then bring those funds back onshore. If you invest in rands, so you buy a rand denominated equity like the S&P 500, you know, when you divest, you divest back into rands. Whereas if you take the money out, put it into dollars, you invest it, you don't divest back into rands, you divest back into the dollars and you can hold those offshore or you can bring them back in. And it just gives you more options and more flexibility in terms of what you want to do. So Nicholas has got 200 from his wife a payout and he wants to know what to do with it I mean that's a that's a good lump sum of money isn't it a lot of people feel that it's only the rich you can do offshore what is the minimum that you can put in what's the maximum what could you do with 200 And I know you can't give specific financial advice but what should he be thinking of from a portfolio of shares point of view for example well you know again I think I think Based on his specific circumstances, one needs to, number one, evaluate what's going on. But if he's looking at it from the perspective of, I want a RAND hedge, the first thing I would do is take those funds offshore. So convert them into potentially dollars or euros or pounds and consider you know, the type of investment that you're going to do, number one, you've got to look at investment charges. You know, how much does it cost to go with a brokerage? How much does it cost if you're going to be investing it through one of the international funds? Because those fees can be quite significant. If Nicholas is a hands-on person, so somebody that actually wants to be in control of it, doesn't want to just hand it over to somebody else who then runs it, but wants to, to 
you know, potentially manage it themselves. I would certainly look at an online trading platform that allows him to convert his funds into a foreign currency and then invest it in potentially an ETF. You know, there's, there's a lot of NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange listed ETFs that track technology or pharmaceuticals or innovation and potentially put it into one of these ETFs and leave it there for a while. That's the kind of thing that I like to do. Uh, it, it gives him full control over it he can buy and sell as he, he feels comfortable. Okay, to do that, you probably need to be quite a sophisticated investor. You need to be have done your homework. If you are somebody who wants to hand it all over, yes. how do you get the right person? And, uh, and I ask with a vested interest because I used to live in the Middle East. Yep. And after I gave birth, when you kind of, you know, your brain flatlines a little bit, um, I was taken for a ride with so many other people in the Middle East because the regulations there are not, uh, are they, are they not strong. And a lot of the money was taken by the funds that we weren't made aware of. Yeah. So how are you, layman, supposed to check that out? How do you know that you're not being ripped off? Well, so, so that's a great question. I, I, think, I think we're fortunate in South Africa that there are a lot of very well-known businesses and investment firms out there that, that can manage these kind of portfolios for you, you know. So if you look at companies like Liberty and Melville Douglas or Alan Gray, you know, they, they, they have brokers, trusted brokers, and you can go to them, they can provide you advice, you can give them your, your lump sum, and they'll invest that for you. However, there are disadvantages with that. Effectively, you're giving control to a third party and you're, you're reliant on that trust relationship, you know, and, and hopefully if you're with somebody reputable, it will go smoothly. But I think that, you know, technology has advanced significantly over the last couple of years. And you don't, you don't have to do that anymore. You mm. can actually take ownership of that process yourself. You can decide where you want to invest it. Yes, it's, it's always imperative that you do some research, that you understand a little bit about what's going on. But today, you know, digital platforms enable you to, to really perform that job yourself and at a significantly lower cost than having somebody do that for you. So I think the world is moving in that direction. I think more people are going to be doing it themselves. When it comes to investment, and I know when you hand it over that you've got to do that risk assessment, which I always have a spate of narcolepsy when I go through it. It was a, a spate of fear. I mean, how important, how do you work out how much money you should be putting in? What sort of percentage of your salary should you consider? What goes into that sort of consideration? That, that is really dependent on your specific set of circumstances. You've got to consider things like your age, your retirement age, what are you earning, how much disposable income you've got. And there's lots of different rules. You know, some people would say you must put a minimum of 30% of your total disposable income into some sort of investment. Others say it's higher, some say it's, it's less. And I think that, you know, what's really, really critical is that you unpack your specific circumstances, you look at your goals from a retirement perspective, and then you decide what you're comfortable with. That's why having financial advisors and brokers can be very, very valuable because they can help you determine and understand your set of circumstances, come up with a specific goal for you, and then provide you with an investment strategy that helps you achieve that goal. Nicholas raised another point about easy access. Yeah. If you want that, is it not better to open a bank account in the UK, for example? I've gone through the process of opening a, a bank account offshore, and it, it, it's not what I would call a smooth process. It is, it is quite a lengthy process. Give your DNA. 
Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And I think over and above that, you've got a lot of fees. So there's usually when you have a bank account, an offshore bank account, there's monthly fees, minimum cash balances, you know, and, and I think... I think there's just easier ways of doing that now where you can effectively replicate an offshore bank account, but you can do that in a much, much simpler and easier way without all the paperwork, without all the costs and fees associated to it. You were talking about the, the maximum you can take out, $10 million, but you've got to get the go-ahead from the tax man, from SARS. How do you avoid tax? How do you... <laughs> I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we get dodgy, but I mean, nobody really wants to pay tax unless you can see it going into sort of upliftment. Uh, sure. What's the best way to go around that? I think the first thing you need to understand is that every South African individual over the age of 18 automatically gets a 1 million rand single discretionary allowance. So that is prescribed by the South African Reserve Bank, and that is an annual allowance that runs from the 1st of, of January to the 31st of December. What does that mean? It means that I can effectively take up to 1 million rand uh, without any paperwork or anything like that out of South Africa. And, and, and by taking it out of South Africa, it really means I can convert it into a foreign currency and hold those funds offshore. So that's your 1 million. Now, in terms of, of, of taxes, there's no tax implication for the movement of the funds out. But of course, any growth on those funds. So if you invested in something and you realize a return on that investment, that is taxable income. The second component to that is, is the additional. So, so if I want to take more than that out for investment purposes, I can apply through the, the, the SARS website. Um, I, can, I can apply for a tax clearance certificate. Now that tax clearance certificate allows me then to take up to an additional 10 million depending on if you qualify for that or not. And that, that, that will, you know, whether you qualify or not is dependent on, you know, how much funds you have available to take out and, and a whole bunch of other things. Mm. And really tax kind of works in a very similar way to the way that it would work if you are investing it uh, locally or internationally. It's really about understanding the value that you've gained from that and ensuring you are paying the tax on any investment mm where you realize a gain on that investment. Does it change in every jurisdiction? And off the back of that, I'm just going to put some questions to you of another email I got this morning. This is about buying and selling shares in the US. If she sells a share, makes a profit, do I get taxed in the US? So no, in, in the US, you won't get taxed on your gains in the US, but you will be responsible for declaring the gain in South Africa. So you will get taxed in South Africa against the gains. But there is one thing where you do pay tax in the US on equities. Mm. And, and that is really on the, the it's, a, it's a dividends tax, a dividends withholding tax. So when you get paid dividends, the US government takes 15% of that dividends as as tax. That's automatically done for you if you have something called a W-8 Ben form, which is effectively something that allows you to register in the US to pay tax against your dividends. So you should be registered as a taxpayer there? Yes, Okay. but well, you're not registered as a taxpayer per se. You're, you're registered as somebody who lives outside of, of the US, okay. who's not from the US, who is investing directly in equities in the US. And as a result of that, you are responsible for tax and that, that tax gets gets um, deducted from your payouts. Okay, so if you've got assets and shares offshore, do you need to make up another will? You're getting into an area that I'm not a tax expert on, but 
I would certainly say that, you know, there are things to consider. There's, there's something called CITES tax, which is applicable um, in the US. So if should you, should you pass away and you have assets invested in the, in the US, your uh, beneficiaries may be liable for, for some, some taxes associated to, to your estate. And so one has to consider all of these things. My advice is that anyone that's really considering investing certainly significant amount of, of money, if, you, if you're going to invest a few thousand dollars and you're worried about that, speak to, to, to a tax person. But, mm. but if, if, you're, if you're going to be investing $100,000, $200,000 at a time, I, I, my recommendation would be to speak to a tax practitioner, somebody that understands that and who can advise you to structure, structure it in the right way. Because yes, mm. there are taxes, uh, it can get quite complicated and one should obviously always be prepared for that. So Nicholas was very interested in using the Shift platform. You are head of Shift at Standard Bank. I know it's won many awards. Is this a route that he should consider and how will it ease his movement of money? As the head of Shift, I'm definitely going to recommend that uh, Nicholas give Shift a try. But, but um, jokes aside... Yes, uh, you know, the fundamental essence of Shift right now is that it makes the ability to buy and sell foreign exchange really simple. It, 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 is, it is, to the best of my knowledge, the easiest and simplest and actually the most cost-effective cost way to buy foreign exchange and hold foreign exchange uh, in South Africa today. I'm not aware of any other platform that does this. You know, fundamentally... Before you start moving money offshore, before you start traveling offshore or, or, or buying goods offshore or investing offshore, if you're going to do that in foreign currency, as we've discussed, download Shift, register for Shift. You don't have to be a Standard Bank customer. Anybody can download and register for Shift. There are no monthly fees. And you can then very, very simply and very easily take the first step to investing offshore, which is let me get my foreign exchange. Let me buy my foreign exchange. So take 200,000 Rand, um, put it into Shift. It's, a, it's just an ETF into, a, into a, a, a bank account. And then he can convert those funds into dollars or euros or pounds whenever he wants to. If the rate's good today, he sees the rate is favorable, he might want to convert it at that, at that point in time. We are very transparent around our fees and, and he's got complete control over the process. And you can access your money at any stage. At any stage. What many people want. And so what will happen is as soon as he's purchased, gone from rands into dollars, the dollars are instantaneously available to him uh, and they're held inside a dollar wallet on shift. Mm. Now, from a reserve bank perspective, those funds have now been externalized. We've reported the, 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 the transfer of the funds from rands into dollars to the reserve bank under the, the single discretionary allowance. Now, Nicholas has got the equivalent of uh, 200,000 rands worth of dollars sitting in a shift dollar wallet, and he can decide what he wants to do, to, do with it. Now, on shift, you can do many things with it. You can move those funds into an, an offshore bank account. You could move those funds into potentially, uh, if, if, if you wanted to sign up with uh, a, a Melville Douglas or a Standard or a Liberty uh, offshore portfolio, he could move those funds uh, very simply and very cost effectively into that portfolio. And then they will then take over and invest those funds based on, on, on what he's agreed with, with the, re the relevant broker. But if he wants to do it himself, then he can take the funds and 
directly on Shift, he can invest those funds in uh, stocks on the New York Stock Exchange or stocks on the NASDAQ or ETFs, which, whichever he, he, he has chosen. If he does a bit of research, he can see what's happening in you know, technology or industrials or pharmaceuticals. So, so it's pretty evident if you do the research on how well a share is doing Absolutely. if you want to invest in the NASDAQ. Absolutely. Uh, we offer, uh, I think, around 300 um, direct stocks and around 50 ETFs today. And what's, what's really nice is that we've got a very low fee, fee structure. So it's very easy to invest. And if Nicholas all of a sudden has some kind of an issue and he needs to access that money, he can access it immediately. He can sell the shares as long as the markets are open. He can sell the shares uh, and back into his dollar wallet. He can also return it back into rands um, and spend it and cash it, cash it out. And so what's really nice is that you've got that control. When you hand it over to a, a third party, the challenge is, is that the funds aren't that accessible. It's a little bit more difficult to get those funds back into your hands. They've mm. got to divest for you. Usually there's at least a 30-day notice period, if not longer. There might be penalties for withdrawing. Then they've got to get the money back into your bank account. Then it automatically gets converted back into RANDs unless you've got an offshore account and we've already d- spoken about that. Mm. So, so for Nicholas, the beauty with Shift is that number one, he can get into the foreign currency very quickly, very mm. easily and most uh, uh, most certainly very affordably. It's, it's really, we've got one of the best Mm. rates available in the market. And then from there, he can decide what he wants to do with it. If you had to give somebody your your best tip to investing offshore, other than going through shift, what would it be? I mean, how do you release the fear if the fear is there? I think that the best tip is always go through somebody reputable. Investing offshore can feel daunting, but it's actually a lot simpler than it used to be. And as long as you stick with the reputable brands, you stick with the, I don't want to say necessarily the bigger ones, because it's not necessarily, there's, there's a lot of small boutique firms that also are very reputable, doing great work. But my, my, my biggest tip is, is make sure you've researched who you're investing with. There are a lot of scams out there. There are a lot of people convincing you to give them you know, uh, to, to, to hand over your money and you'll never see them again. And that old mantra, if it sounds too good to be true. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen we've seen some really big scams, certainly in the cryptocurrency world in South Africa. You know, and I think I think one one must be careful. One must do the the, the research. And my second tip is my preference is I want to be in control. I want to be in control. I want to know that the funds are accessible to me when I need them. If something goes wrong, I don't want to have to ask somebody nicely if they don't mind please returning my funds to me. I want to be able to do it myself. I know. Very good to talk to you. Thank you. And we'll have more of your questions answered in the next episode of Money 101 with Jane Dutton. Get in touch with me on jane at biznews.com. Thanks for watching. Hi, welcome. My name is Michael Apple. I'm joined in conversation this week by advocate Aaron Richards and Ethel Williams, Bain Whistleblower. First on the agenda is the issue of legal privilege. What is it? Why are we talking about it? Great, Mike, thanks so much for having me back. Let's just start with what legal privilege actually is. So legal privilege protects from disclosure any documents between attorney and client that are produced either for the purposes of seeking legal advice or for the purposes of preparing for contemplated um, litigation. Why it's important is because this, this issue raised its head 
quite significantly in um, Athol's testimony before before the commission. We've spoken twice about all of Bain's nefarious work at SARS, so we don't need, need to recap that. But in essence, what happened there, as I understand it, is Bain actually asked a law firm, Baker McKenzie, to do an external investigation of what had happened during its time at SARS uh, between 2014 and 2015. And the idea, as I understand it from Athol's testimony, was that that investigation was supposed to be open and transparent, and it was supposed to be overseen by Athol in the best interests of South Africa. Now, what happened is that legal privilege was one of the reasons invoked um, that actually prevented full transparency during that negotiations process. And so it's quite important, I think, for people to look at the issue of legal privilege to understand how it can operate both in favor of the client, but also sometimes to um, unjustifiably suppress information uh, or the flow of information in society. Mr. Williams, let me bring you in here. I was reading through your testimony at the State Capture Inquiry, the 23rd of March, 2021. Who is Baker McKenzie from your point of view? What were they brought in to do? And how was legal privilege used, I wouldn't say against you, but to kind of stop you from inevitably finding out what went on at Bain? So, Michael, as I understand it, Baker McKenzie is one of the world's largest law firms, um, in fact, I think it's the, the, uh, the U.S.'s largest law firm. Um, Bain had brought Baker McKenzie in um, supposedly to conduct an, inter, um, an, and, sorry, an independent investigation. This was how Bain had announced it in its press release and announced it to the Nugent Commission that they called in Baker McKenzie to conduct this independent investigation into what had happened at SARS and also what had happened at some of the other state institutions where Bain had worked. Um, the way I got involved was Bain were at that stage, so we're talking about September 2018, just um, soon after um, Bain had testified at the Newton Commission. At that point, Bain wanted to show South Africa that they were being open and transparent about what they discovered in this investigation. And they wanted to give assurances that they would be open and transparent. And so Bain contracted with me. At this point, I wasn't employed by Bain. I'd left Bain in 2010. But in 2018, they contracted with me. And my contract stipulated that I would provide oversight of the Baker McKenzie investigation. So what this meant was I wouldn't conduct any investigation. Baker McKenzie was there to conduct the investigation, but I would see all the evidence that Baker McKenzie collected. I would see Baker McKenzie's final findings report, and I would write a report that would, that would go to the Nugent Commission and go public to give assurances that what was reported in the Baker McKenzie report actually was what was found. There's a bit of a problem here. How truly independent was the investigation undertaken by Baker McKenzie? Do red lights yeah. kind of go off here? I, yeah, th th there are a couple of red lights for me, but I think that there's two issues here. Um, the one is, was it transparent? 
and the other one was was it independent because those were those were the two overarching principles it wasn't just the independence it was also the transparency that was the hallmark of this entire thing now it looks from what athel has said as though both of those elements were significantly compromised by having used the same law firm because let's look at what happened here was bain was Bain was appearing frequently, well, I think actually it was only once or twice at, at the end of the day, but they were preparing yeah. numerous submissions before the, the Nugent Commission. And as I understand it, it was Baker McKenzie who was advising them and preparing them um, for their appearances and for their, um, their submissions to, to that commission. And then once that's been done or once that's in process, they then simultaneously are contracted to do this supposed transparent external independent investigation. Now, let's just look at how privilege can, can operate nefariously here. Now, when Bain was, or when Baker McKenzie was helping Bain prepare for the commission, that those documents, any documents that came to light during that process of preparation would legitimately be privileged from disclosure. But, and that's all fair and well. But the problem then comes in is what happens if some of those documents are also relevant to the supposed um, transparent and independent investigation? Then you have a problem, right? Do you stick to privilege, which you're going to have to unless the client waives it? Remember, it's only a client that can waive privilege because the privilege attaches to the client. They were legal advisors first. The question then became, should they have taken that, that uh, mandate to conduct the investigation? Correct. I think... And maybe I'm being disingenuous. It, it, for me, it shows the intent at the outset of this investigation was never for it to be transparent and independent because these two parties entered into a contract which they knew would be compromised because they were not independent. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to pick up on, on that, uh, on a sort of slight point of, of clarification. You know, had it been different people working within Baker McKenzie on, on different facets, yes, they could have erected a Chinese wall. And, and I've, I see that done very often and often very successfully in, in law firms where different teams will, will do work um, for the same client and there's, no, and there's no conflict because of that Chinese wall. But even if on the best interpretation, um, Baker McKenzie was somehow able to maintain... Um, the independence of the investigation. The fact is, they must have known from the start that the transparency of the investigation would be compromised because there were certain privileged documents that would not be disclosed to you. So even if the the, the independence was was maintained, the transparency was compromised. And so here you, you get into this very fraught legal ethical debate around what comes first, you know, your duty to your client as a lawyer, or do you also have a higher duty for, to the constitution, to the value of transparency of governance, for example, and to ensure the flow of certain information. Baker McKenzie advised Bain not to submit a report to the Nugent Commission. I put it to you, not an independent investigator. Yeah. And I mean, it, it does. As, and as far as I'm concerned or, or remember, you know, when they refused to give you that report, they didn't expressly invoke privilege. They, they kind of tortured you almost you know first they offered it to you and then they said well no you can't see it no you can kind of half see it no sorry we'll read it to you now that's not an invocation of privilege because they would have known that the report was not privileged because the privilege had been waived by virtue of the transparency of the investigation 
So what they did instead was they frustrated you to the point of where you just gave up because you knew you weren't going to see this this report. Do you feel like you were used in, in that way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I was, as you described, um, frustrated during this process. They were, as I communicated to Bain, they were manipulating me. They were trying to hoodwink me and I kept catching them out. So, so as you say, um, it was explicit, absolutely explicit in their contract, in my contract, that I would see their findings at the same time as Bain. So that was crystal clear. Um, towards near, near, sort, of, sort of three months in or two months into my contract, um, Baker McKenzie said to me, they're not producing a report, which I found very odd. Um, how do you conduct an investigation and not produce a report? So that was the first back and forth um, of me then going to Bain saying, well, if Baker McKenzie don't produce a report, how do I verify um, that it's been, this, this investigation has been truthful and transparent? Because that's ultimately what I need to make my judgment. Mm. Then they came back to me saying, oh, no, there will be a report, but um, I can't see it. Um, and, of course, this, this was nonsensical, so I pushed back against this. Then they came to me, and this is all documented, all part of the evidence I submitted to the Zondo Commission. Then they came back to me and said, well, they will read the report to me on the phone, um, <laughs> but I must claim that I've seen it, right? And in fact, there's an incident I described in my book, Deep Collusion, where we have this, this, um, this conference call. We have got Baker McKenzie partners um, from the US and South Africa on the phone. We've got the Bain people on the phone, and I'm on the phone. And... I'm supposed to see this report on my computer screen and we're meant to walk through it. And we're talking and talking, but I'm not seeing the, the report on my screen. And so an hour into the call, I asked them, but when am I going to see this report? And the Baker McKenzie partner says to me, um, well, we are reading it to you. Um, that should be good enough. Do you think we'd lie to you? And I then immediately end this call. But it was these sort of games where they, they said they'll do something, then they didn't. Because um, as it ended, by the end of my contract, my oversight contract, I hadn't seen this report. And so obviously I could not fulfill my mandate. Yeah, I mean, how belittling is that? I, I read in your, in your testimony, and it's in your book, that you said to the guy, but you're, you're trying to paint a picture, or you're trying to explain to me what, uh, what a portrait or a picture looks like. I mean, you went to extraordinary lengths to be able to get, just to get your hands on this report, and they sought to scupper that at every turn. Erin, uh, neutral arbiter investigator versus Bain is paying them to put up this sort of charade in the end. Mm, yeah. And I mean, look, so it seems to me patently clear that that's exactly what this was, was a charade. And the question then becomes, well, did Baker McKenzie know that it was a charade? Um, and, and if they did, what were, their, what were their ethical duties there? You know, my, my argument would have been that if they did know, they should have just, they should have refused that, that brief to do that investigation. Um, and arguably, even if they didn't know, it must have become manifest to them um, through that process that, that they were being used just as Athel was being used. And at that point, they should have, um, on, 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 in my view, relinquished that, that brief. But like I say, this, the, the ethical space in law is, is fraught with, with debate and inconsistencies. And so it's always useful to get the versions of, of both sides in, in something like that. But it certainly doesn't look to me like this was, was independent or at any 
weren't supposed to be independent. Um, and the one very alarming thing that appears from Athol's transcripts is this idea of the report being used for prosecution. As I understand it, when, and Athol, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading that you had raised this as an issue and said, well, I'm sorry, but why is it that I'm not seeing this report? Why is it not being disclosed? And the answer that, that came back was, well, it might open Bain to prosecution. Am I correct there? Now, right. now that, that, is, that is also, to me, a, a, ve a very, very alarming fact. You know, firstly, the report was not privileged. So on what basis do you, do you stop it from being released or prevent it from being released? And if there is some kind of overarching... Um, prosecutorial element there well then that's surely more justification for its release not less justification you know, especially if it's not privileged um, so you know we come back to this whole debate around which value in society do we hold most dear is it the is it the the privacy of the individual or is it the free flow of important information in society um, and that's something that the legal fraternity hasn't hasn't quite quite grappled with yet and I mean I'd be quite keen to hear Athol's kind of ethical critique of, of where we are as a society because it seems like we've got a lot of a lot of work to do Mr. Williams, go ahead. I took the view, and I think with justification, that Baker McKenzie were there as the independent investigators. And in my understanding of legal privilege, it therefore didn't apply. Mm. Because Baker McKenzie, in my understanding, were not hired to be Bain's legal advisors. They were hired to be independent investigators. And so I pushed quite hard against this idea of legal privilege. Um, even in their affidavit to the Zonda Commission, Bain disparagingly tries to obviously insult and discredit me, but talk about how I don't understand legal privilege. And maybe that's true. Maybe I don't understand it. But in my mind, if you talk about an independent investigator, I think the issue of legal privilege becomes irrelevant because this independent investigator should have collected the facts, synthesized the facts in a report, and handed it over to the client and left the client um, to do with it what, what they wanted or handed over to the Nugent Commission. But the independent investigator cannot be advising their client on what to do with that information. And secondly, cannot be um, hiding behind privilege when it comes to that, that, that information. So I understand how you could say, well, you know, maybe Baker McKenzie didn't know they were being used. I want to argue Baker McKenzie were absolutely complicit in this whole exercise because there's even evidence where Baker McKenzie writes, we've found this information and we must decide whether we want to send this to the Nugent Commission. And, and the language says two things. The language says um, they, 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 they saw themselves as part of the Bain team. You know, what will we do with this information? And secondly, it wasn't this must obviously go to the Nugent Commission, which is what I think an independent investigator would be doing. But we must decide whether we want to send this to the Nugent Commission. That, for me, again, shows that they were part, they understood what was happening. This was a cover-up. This was a sham investigation. And so it isn't even an ethical dilemma for me, Aaron. It, it's, it's so clear of, of a law firm, I think, acting unethically, um, not doing its duty as an independent investigator which is what Baker McKenzie has been hired to do and what I've been hired to oversee. That, I think, is is incredibly important, especially that that email that you've just referenced there where they say that, that they wanted to decide what to do because that was something that came up repeatedly in the Nugent Commission um, was a lot of frustration with, 
with um, with Bain, where it was felt that Bain was putting forward the information that they wanted the commission to see, rather than the information that they knew was was relevant. And this came up time yeah. and time and time again. So again, this concern that they were being used um, as some kind of PR stunt rather than an exercise in transparency. Now, let's just get back to this thing about um, about privilege and investigations, because that, that's yes. interesting, is does privilege attach to investigations? Now, in, in law, the answer to that is it depends what the purpose of the investigation is. If the purpose of the investigation is to give advice to the client, it will be covered by privilege. If the purpose of the investigation is to prepare for litigation, it will be covered mostly by privilege. If the purpose is an independent, transparent investigation, which, by the way, if it's transparent, you've implicitly waived whatever privilege might or might not attach. But if it's an independent investigation, privilege shouldn't attach there because you're not, you're not giving legal advice and you're not giving any kind of preparatory advice for contemplated litigation. So, I mean, unless there was something going on behind the scenes that, that we don't know about it, but it seems pretty clear that privilege in and of itself didn't attach, especially to that report. Um, so, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And, and it, it does appear as though there was some kind of agreement to, to thwart the, the transparency here, which is unfortunate. It's unethical. Ethel, did the Nugent Commission or the state capture inquiry make a finding in regard to, to Baker McKenzie and them not being able to release or relinquish this report to you? Was any finding ever made by either of those commissions of inquiry? Um, Michael, not, not explicitly from what I know. So um, Baker McKenzie was not mentioned in either of those reports. I, I think the, the point that Erin made earlier is an important one. This, this fact that Bain says we cannot release this report to you, Athol, or to anyone publicly, because if we did, it would um, enhance the chances that we get prosecuted. Um, now, again, in my, in my simple mind, it indicates that there was information found there that proved Bain's wrongdoing, perhaps even criminal activity. Uh, and why wasn't and, that put up so in the commissions? Yeah, and, and this argument that Bain keeps putting forward that said, oh, we made some mistakes and um, the report found no wrongdoing, I kept saying, well, let the public see this report. Let us, let us um, understand what happened. Don't give us the conclusion that you draw. Let us see the details of the report. And, and that's never been made, um, made public. But I think I've got other enough, enough documentary evidence where Bain has looked at this report, Baker McKenzie have looked at this report, and they know it's going to be problematic because they themselves say that if this is made public, um, it will enhance the chances of them being prosecuted. So this is a clear example to my layman mind of player and referee being, being one and the same here. Where to from here? If the report exists, and, and Ethel, I'd like to believe it does because they, they tried their darndest to keep it away from you. Where to now, Erin? Uh, mm. Well, yeah, I mean, so... As I said earlier, it would have been 
really interesting to to see what would have happened had the, had the decision to withhold that report been challenged in in court, and that's an that's an option that is that's still open for uh, for pursuit. I mean, I don't know whether Athol or anyone else has got any intentions of of pursuing that, but it's certainly an avenue that is that is open. Um, you know, we, we can't be certain what the court will will find because obviously it will have facts from both sides. You know, it, it will also have Baker McKenzie's version and facts and Bain's version and facts, um, and it will then make a, a determination about whether there is any basis to to withhold that that report. Um, so, so that that is an avenue that's that's um, that's open. And just to go back to what Athel said about this law firm issue having not been raised in any of the reports. It's correct. And and there was a, a disappointing lack by the commission in, in in my view. And one can understand because they were just swamped with with a, a massive pile of, of work. But there was no interrogation of the role of lawyers or of law firms in the state capture that was under investigation. Um, and also into you know whether or not law firms are actually now perpetuating state capture by ensuring and keeping information suppressed. Now one would think that would be an important aspect to to interrogate, but it just it, it got left completely by by the sidelines. So lawyers have basically been left completely off the hook in in this. Everyone else is getting interrogated. All the other industries, all the politicians, everyone's being hauled through the cleaners, except the law firms. But um, and not not just law firms, advocates. You know, it, it's not. I'm not saying that there's a massive ethical problem across the entire thing, and everyone's captured. I'm not saying that at all. But but we do need to start having debates around the role of lawyers in in facilitating state capture, because inadvertently or intentionally, they often get caught up in in these these schemes um, and in justifying certain actions and conduct that, at the end of the day, constitute state capture. Ethel Williams, as the lawyers say, final bite at the cherry. I agree with what what Erin's saying about we need to also bring law firms into our purview in thinking about the players involved in state capture. Because in this case, with Bain and Baker McKenzie, Baker McKenzie are intimately involved in the cover-up, which for me is an action of frustrating justice in our country, not advancing it. Um, and as a law firm of their international stature, I think it's important for them to be playing the role of advancing justice. So I do think we need to get to this point of holding the real players more accountable. And um, Bain, absolutely. But I think in this case, Baker McKenzie as well has a lot to answer for, for its role in, in covering up what Bain did and is doing in our country. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Ethel Williams. From an undisclosed location, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And as always, Aaron Richards, thanks for listening. Today is Tuesday, February 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. As rhetoric heats up over Ukraine, we'll zero in on the messaging campaigns between Moscow and Washington. And Central America and Mexico are enjoying an unexpected jump in remittances from migrant workers in the U.S. Our correspondent spoke to some of them. You know, one of them said to me, you know, it seems like nobody wants to take these jobs. I don't know why, because these are very well-paid jobs, you know, relative to what migrants would make in their home countries. Plus, we'll look at whether the risk of investing in emerging markets is still worth the shrinking reward. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need.
The U.S. closed its embassy in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv yesterday and moved its staff further west. This comes as U.S. allies warn that a Russian attack on Ukraine may be imminent. As tensions have ratcheted up, so is the rhetoric. The FT's chief foreign affairs commentator Gideon Rockman spoke to us about efforts by Moscow and Washington to control the narrative. Well, I think it's been striking throughout this crisis that America has been very public in its warnings of uh, Russia invading. Now, some of that might be for the reasons stated. They say they want Americans to get out of Ukraine before the tanks start rolling, possibly to avoid the kind of debacle that you had with the evacuation of Kabul. But I think it's also because they want to get ahead of the Russians. They want to say, look, uh, Russia has ringed Ukraine with troops and don't believe the Russian story. They want to dominate the airways because the Russians are saying, we have no intention to invade. This is all about Ukrainian actions. Ukraine's being aggressive. The West is being aggressive. So both sides are trying to shape the narrative. But Gideon says that Western allies may be at a disadvantage compared to Russia because there's such a high level of public distrust in government in the U.S. and in Europe. There was one poll recently where there was a cross-country uh, question put to people in the West saying, do you believe there's a single group of people who secretly control all world events? Over 20% of the public in Germany, France, Britain and America saying, yes, we believe that. Now, if your public are at that level of scepticism, whether you can continue to create a kind of national consensus around policies, say, towards Russia, which may demand some economic sacrifice, some danger if you're having a, a kind of militarized response, then, uh, you know, what, what Russia will be trying to do is to widen the number of people in the West who are skeptical of their governments and therefore weaken the basis for a unified Western response. Gideon Rockman is the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator. The money that migrant workers send back home has always been critical for their families and for their home country's economies. But last year, there was an extraordinary rise in remittances sent by Mexican and Central American migrants in the U.S. Amounts sent back to countries like Honduras and Guatemala rose more than 25 percent. Here's the FT's Mexico and Central America correspondent, Christine Murray. The number one reason is really the strength of the U.S. economy and the, the availability of jobs for migrants. Speaking to migrants who are in the U.S., you know, they all say that there are job ads everywhere. You know, one of them said to me, you know, it seems like nobody wants to, to take these jobs. And I don't know why, because these are very well paid jobs, you know, relative to what migrants would make uh, in their home countries. Several migrants said to me, you know, that they think what they would make in an hour in the United States would take them a whole day in Mexico. The rise in remittances means Mexico and Central American countries are more reliant on migrant workers. Christine says Mexico's leader even gave a public shout out to them. The president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, you know, has said that the migrants that send back money from the U.S. Um, you know, are heroes and he compares them to doctors and nurses saving lives. The researchers I spoke to said that actually, you know, remittances are kind of a natural part of development. Obviously, there are a lot of homes that really rely on this money to stay out of poverty. Even in Mexico's huge economy, remittances make up 4% of GDP. That's more than oil exports or foreign direct investment. Christine told me about one Mexican worker she spoke to. He's now a waiter in the U.S. state of Kentucky and makes about $5,000 a month. And he manages to send back a quarter of his paycheck. But he did mention that 
for this year, you know, he's worried about inflation in Mexico and will probably have to send even more. Um, he said he'd probably have to stop saving so that he could support his uh, wife and family back in Mexico. So yeah, inflation is really is really eating into remittances. And uh, this year, you know, they're expected to rise again, though not by um, as much as in 2021. Christine Murray is the FT's Mexico and Central America correspondent. Investing in fast-growing, developing economies was long seen as high risk, but high reward. That calculus may now be changing. The FT's Jonathan Wheatley says emerging markets may now be high risk, no reward. He joins me to talk more about this. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Matt. So is it really no reward or just not enough to justify the risk? Look, as ever, it's very, very hard to say. But I mean, certainly an awful lot of investors have been looking for rewards in emerging markets for many years and not been finding them. I mean, that's particularly true in the in local currency debt, where when things go in your favor, you can make a lot of money because in, interest rates in emerging markets tend to be higher. And for many, many years, there was something called the carry trade where people would borrow where interest rates are low to invest their money where interest rates are high. And emerging markets for many years were a no-brainer in that. People cleaned up fantastically. But that hasn't been the case for a good decade or so now. Um, Some people hope it's going to come true this year, but I'm afraid there's all kinds of conditions rather stacked against that. Yeah, I want to talk about those, Jonathan. What exactly has changed? Well, an awful lot has changed. I mean, one thing right now is the pandemic. But even before the pandemic came along, um, the the growth mojo had kind of gone from emerging markets and they were looking around trying to get it back. For a long time in the 90s, and especially the first decade of this century after China joined the World Trade Organization, uh, China was the big engine. China was sucking in goods from other emerging markets, a lot of commodities, but lots of other stuff as well. Um, And China is now growing in a different way. It's growing more slowly and it's growing in a way that is much less import dependent. So that's that's been bad. Um, And now the pandemic obviously has hit. Uh, and that obviously hasn't helped at all putting emerging markets in a in a better place to invest in for growth. So assuming that the trend that you're describing continues, what does that mean for emerging markets? Does that investment just dry up? Oh, over the past several months, the amount of money going into emerging market stocks and bonds, according to the Institute of International Finance, which compiles data on these things, that has basically come to a sudden stop. I mean, apart from China, it turned quite strongly negative in January of this year. It's always very hard to extrapolate into the future from past trends. But at the moment, investors are really sitting on piles of cash that they don't really know what to do. And actually, one of the things that's driven quite a lot of emerging market investment in recent years is all the trillions of dollars that the Fed and other advanced economy central banks pumped into global financial markets. First of all, after the global financial crisis a decade ago, but then again, of course, massively during the pandemic, that money has to go somewhere. And a lot of times when it's gone into emerging markets, that's been the motive. It's got to go somewhere. So here are some assets. Let's buy them. But as that gets withdrawn, that becomes less of an issue. And that's what's about to happen again. Jonathan Wheatley is the FT's Emerging Markets Correspondent. Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Before we go, the U.S. state of Texas yesterday sued Facebook's parent company Meta. The state's attorney general filed a complaint accusing Meta of collecting its citizens' data from photos and videos and posting them without consent. Attorney General Ken Paxton accuses Facebook of violating state law billions of times. He wants at least $10,000 in civil penalties for each violation. Now, Facebook already said it would shut down its facial recognition system and get rid of the data it collected. It responded to the Texas lawsuit, saying it was without merit. But last year, Facebook agreed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to settle a similar lawsuit from the state of Illinois. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.